Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 52 of Daffy's Roundtable. On this episode, I'm joined by my good friend and extraordinary reptile keeper and breeder, Alex from Alex's Reptile World. Alex works with an incredible assortment of some of the more uncommon reptiles. And in today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into two of those species. You've already seen the episode title by now, so you probably already know what species we're talking about. But just to emphasize the excitement, Fiji iguanas and indigo snakes. But before we do that, allow me to thank Exoterra for sponsoring this podcast and making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Alex. Enjoy. Alex, hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. We have not been talking for the past half an hour. No, not this at all. Completely just, we just started this conversation. It's completely natural. <laughs> okay, awesome. Exactly. Well, first of all, thank you for coming on. We're finally no. doing this. Yeah. Um, we have been we both have very busy schedules and have been trying to make this work for a very long time. I feel like I say that with a lot of my guests, but it's true. Yeah, um, I think this is like two years of the making now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, it's true. Um, but it's finally happening. We're 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 ready to do this, we're ready to go. We have yeah. a very interesting episode for you guys today. Um, we're gonna be talking about a lot of really cool species, starting with the Fiji iguanas, but before we dive into that, Alex, can you tell us how you used to get started in the hobby and like where you're currently at in the hobby? So the way I got started was my parents would never let me have any snakes or anything as a pet when I was a kid. So I went to college. I became a marine engineer and I went to a reptile show and I bought my first snake. The second reptile show I went to, I bought three more. And then it just spiraled right after that. That's usually how it goes. I had uh, about 200 ball pythons at one point, got overwhelmed, and I had to sell them off. Then I got married and then divorced, and then I started collecting all the rare stuff. Because nobody tell you not to do it. That's why. <laughs> that's awesome do you remember what the first species was was it a ball python was that the my first, first piece my first snake was a pastel ball python i still know where it is you my do? friend has it that's crazy that's yeah. crazy did you and ever breed second, that snake my second was a wild caught normal ball python okay. that's about 35 years 30 years old right now roughly and another friend has that one that's awesome. It's really cool seeing that. It must be really cool seeing your animal like that far down and seeing it still, yeah, still for, healthy. For sure. This one, this female only eats uh, ASFs and eats about six months out of the year. That's it. That's okay. So. That's that's super. Yeah. I, I don't, I, 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 everyone who listens already knows this. I don't keep ball pythons. I don't really know. I don't really know much about ball pythons, but yeah. that whole like f- feeding problem that they seem to have is very interesting to me. It, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it's more of a feeding problem. I think it's more that in the wild they wouldn't eat as frequently or as the size they would get normally in like in captivity. So right. in captivity they're in a cage that they don't do anything in, and they're yeah. fed rats constantly, so they become obese very quickly. So to stop themselves from having, and this is not uh, tested or anything. This is just my opinion. After right. keeping them for so long, um, after they uh, after they stop themselves to stop sorry to stop themselves from being obese and basically getting a heart attack, they'll stop eating and you burn off the body fat. But still, they're in a tank and it doesn't do anything to burn off body fat. 
Right. There's only so much movement you can do in that tank. So it takes months, sometimes years, for a ball python to lose enough weight for it to want to start eating again. Yeah, it's almost like they're self-regulating themselves. Exactly. So that's, that's my yeah. opinion on it. It's, I, I doubt it's correct, but that's that's just <laughs> what I've seen. No, it, it, it definitely makes sense. I'm sure they're smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Awesome. Okay, so before you kind of give us like that quick rundown of, of all the awesome species that you're keeping and working with, um, what are you currently doing for work? Um, I work at Big Owls. I've actually been working at Big Owls and the reptile section in Scarborough for the last 10 years now. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, so I've been working with reptiles for at least 15 years. Awesome. So that's actually how me and Alex met. Every time I'm in the area, I have to drop by and see him. And um, I go to a lot of Big Owls. Props to you. The reptile section at your Big Owls is by far the best. Um, and you guys Thank always you. have the coolest species that are like really well cared for. So props to you. It's always awesome visiting. If you're in Scarborough in the area, go visit Alex. Um, but yeah, okay, awesome. Give us give us a bit of like a rundown of the species you're keeping. Uh, right now I keep uh, Eastern Indigos, uh, yellowtail caribos, blacktail caribos, um, a few boas, uh, boa morphs, leopard, IMG. Um, I have Fiji iguanas, Australian frill dragons, uh, green tree pythons, emerald tree boas, a cook's tree boa, which I've only ever found one of. And that was a random chance that it showed up. And uh, I have one ball python and a leopard gecko for my son. <laughs> you have to. I I have to. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Okay. Shall we dive into the Fiji iguanas? Sure. Okay. So first thing I want to know before we go any, any further is because I really don't understand this. Because every time I see them at the expo, I say, oh, it's it's this. And, and then I hear, no, it's that. And um, to me, because I've never kept them and I don't really know much about them, they all look the same to me, but there is more than one species, correct? Yes. Overall, there's five species, okay. but three of them are the most popular ones. The fasciatus, the balibua, and the vitinensis. Okay. The fasciatus and the balibua are the most common ones. The vitinensis is the crested Fiji iguana, which is really quite rare in Canada. Uh, only, I think, a couple of people in Canada have it right now. Which is amazing, like to even have it. But those, the rest are just small uh, subspecies that were written, uh, uh, described, but not, uh, but they're not my very different except for a few scale patterns. Okay, interesting. So, so which one is the one that you're keeping and working with? I, I work with the Balub one. Okay. The, the, the central the... central Fiji band central banded Fiji one. Okay. And 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 the the differences visually are kind of like, uh, is there structural difference or is it just colors and patterns? It's colors and patterns. If it's on an island, sometimes island gigantism comes into play. So sometimes the males are much larger. Okay. Uh, but most of the time, it's just color. Uh, uh, color. Uh, the visual difference would be the color difference. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So how long have you been working with them? And what's uh, your favorite thing about them? <laughs> so I was never a guy who was into Fiji iguanas. Never into iguanas at all, actually. And then a friend suggested it to me to look into it. And I looked into it. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool. And then I forgot about them. Then 
an opportunity came up to get one, get a pair. And I was like, okay, yeah. My favorite thing about them, honestly, is their size. I don't have the space in my house to house a, have a seven foot long tank and a seven foot, uh, and a, sorry, a 10 foot long tank and a seven foot long lizard, like a green iguana. These guys stay about two feet, two and a half feet at most. And majority of that is tail. So yeah. mine are in a four by two by six usually. My females lay eggs in uh, four by uh, four by eighteen by four, and that's pretty much it. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely. I definitely want to get into the, into the breeding stuff. Yeah. Um, but before that, you mentioned like the ten foot space for the green iguana. Have you ever kept any other iguanas? No, no. like I said before, I've never been in- interested in iguanas. Like you, okay. I, I yeah. never looked into it because everybody had an iguana, so I didn't want to do that. But then now working with the PGs, I'm like, I'm looking at the rhino, igu- rhino rock iguanas and stuff like that. But yeah. of course, I can't get them in Canada. So yeah. it's okay. I'm still yeah. looking. One day, one day. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> what are some of the biggest differences you think between like the green iguana and the Fiji? I know you haven't kept them, but like from what you know. <laughs> um, green iguanas, main difference is size and personality. Like uh, Fiji iguanas can be more aggressive, but within a few hours of working with them, or even an hour of working with them, they'll tame down, they'll sit on your hand, they won't try to run away from you, and they won't try to bite you. This is the Fiji iguanas? Yeah, these are the Fijis. Green iguanas, if they're already adults, they can be very temperamental, their claws are really sharp, and they have a really nasty bite if they get it to you. Yeah, yeah. I've seen seen some, some pretty bad pictures. Yeah. So uh, the Fijis are just easier to handle. Like it's just uh, just more manageable for me. That's why, and the color is phenomenal. Like beyond reproach, the the color that they get is amazing. Yeah, and then okay, so you said you said they start or like they can they can be aggressive, but are they? I've also seen like pictures and videos of people just hanging out. Can they be as calm as? Like, are they easy to tame down and handle? I guess is my question. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, the last Fiji one I sold at the reptile show, when I brought him to the show, he was wild. By the end of that show, he was sitting in my hand without any issue. He didn't even want to run away. And it's not that he wasn't warm. He was just more comfortable with the fact that I'm not hurting him. He's just he's just going to come outside and sit in my hand or sit on my shoulder and hang out with me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one that Greg took? That's the one, yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that, that, that is uh, Snoop. Currently with Greg, uh, shout out beneath the canopy exotics. Um, he's still like that, still calm, and 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 Greg's doing an awesome job with him as well. What about diet wise? Are they um, are they do they eat the same thing as the green iguana, or like what do you feed yours? Um, my my iguana is basically the vegetarian diet. I do supplement with calcium and vitamins like normal, but I do also give them proteins like insects. They still do love their crickets and worms. Um, I don't give to them often. Usually when females are breeding uh, or laying eggs, I give them extra protein and calcium. But otherwise, uh, uh, it's more like a treat for them. Interesting. Do you ever give them like pinky mice or anything like that? I've tried and they've rejected that completely. They've ne- they've, they've, been, they've like knocked it away from the dogs to the yeah. point where like I, like I tried a few times and they had no interest in that whatsoever. But if I put a cricket in front of them, they'll take it right out of my fingers. 
Okay, yeah. So so they they actively eat the insects. It's not like something they'll grab every now and then. Exactly. Yeah. If you if they if it, they come across it, they're gonna eat it. Okay, and is that uh, is that normal for iguanas or are other iguanas like strictly herbivores? I can't say that they're strictly herbivores because if they're in the wild, they're potentially eating Probably worms scrappy. and stuff like yeah. that. But for the most part, yeah, the most iguana most people will just feed their iguanas a vegetarian diet, which is not harmful for them. Uh, but in the early years, it's better. It's it's okay to have a little protein to give them their uh, growth spurt. Right, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, awesome. Okay, and then another thing you said is the size, the difference in size of the enclosures um, of like I guess your pairs versus what you're keeping your females in. Yeah. So is that so? Like, run me through how you kind of keep them through the year. Are you pairing them and just removing the females to let them lay? Or are they usually separated and then you're pairing them for a bit and then... So I have, uh, I, right now I have four adult females and two adult males. Okay. I've tried to collect separate bloodlines okay. as, as much as I can. So, sorry. Uh, as, so I have individual tanks for most of my iguanas. I keep an adult pair in one tank always. And I rotate the female out of that tank always. Okay. And uh, the male doesn't seem to mind me rotating it, uh, rotating the female out, and the female gets pretty dominant in that tank pretty quickly. Okay, super interesting. And and then is is um, you said the female becomes dominant like towards the male? Yeah, because she tends to eat more, especially if he mates with her. She'll take the take the initiative to go to the food bowl first to eat, and while she's developing eggs. Okay. Now, are they uh, seasonal breeders, or is it kind of um, multiple clutches a year, or how does it they, work? They lay multiple clutches a year. I think I've gotten four clutches a year from one of my bigger females. At any point really, in time? Uh, yeah, any point in time. I can. I pretty much. Uh, I haven't gotten the actual numbers down, but I can pretty much tell when my females are going to be gravid. So I usually rotate them into that, uh, put them with the male at that point. You and usually after they lay eggs, I give them about a one month break where they can get at least a one month break where they can build up their energy stores again and gain all their weight back for, and like go back to full strength basically interesting so you said when they're about to be gravid you put them in with the the male with the male yeah okay yeah okay like when they're sorry, sort of uh, ovulating they're, sorry when they're when they're males when i know she's uh ready to mate with the male yeah and she's back to size that's yeah. when i put that's when i put them together and then how long until, or like roughly until the, like they're laying eggs? Uh, within a month and a half, sometimes two months. It's not an exact science for that because some of my females take longer to develop eggs. Um, but once I start seeing the eggs developing in the body, then I, I move them to their own tank and give them their own, uh, give them their own space and everything. So, yeah. And of course you're pulling the eggs and you're putting them in an incubator. Yes, definitely. What temperature? Eight? Uh, stealing all your secrets today. <laughs> <laughs> temperatures actually can range quite a bit. So I incubate my temperature. Uh, I incubate the eggs at 82 degrees Fahrenheit normally, but they can. There's a huge range that they can fit in. I've lost a lot of eggs because I've cooked them because I've uh, put them at too high, at 87, which was what I read online at one point, and then I talked to a bunch of people online, and they said no, it's way too high. Way too so high. I went back down and. They've told me higher ranges that it can work, but I, I found that 82, 82, 81.5, 82 
is usually what I keep him at just to have a good success rate. Do you get an even ratio of like males to females? I'll be honest with you, I didn't expect to, but so far every clutch I've had has been a 50-50 ratio. I'm not yeah. saying that it's not saying that it's because of the temperature or because it's I'm saying it's random chance. But I've had 50-50 ratio every time. Every time, yeah. Can you tell the sex of the baby right off the bat? 99% of the time you can. Males are you can see the blues in the males immediately. Sometimes if you get a less dominant male, you'll have the color shows up a little later. But most of the time, you like 90% of the time, you can tell them immediately. Is that the only way to sex them? Is it a color thing? Yeah. Females are usually green with a little bit of blue. Uh, sorry, a little bit of blue. But the males have the real banding across their bodies. Yeah. And most of the time, you can see it. And do they all? do all the species have banding? Yes. See, this is what confuses me. Because <laughs> one of them is called, or, or I guess the common, so so I need to look into it. But so one of them, the common name is banded. And the other one, the common name is crested. The crested iguana has a, uh, you know how a, a water dragon, an adult water dragon has that crest, on the spike crest mm-hmm. on the back? Yeah. So the crested iguana has that and the bands. It's a, it's a bigger, heavy bodied iguana. Okay. For sure. Okay. Sorry, and does one of them only have red eyes or something? I that I'm not sure. Like most of mine have the same colored eyes, so I couldn't tell you if it's red eyes or if they're albino or have the gene for albino or something in it. So I couldn't tell you that for sure. But the ones I worked with all have the same colored eyes. So it's super interesting. Super, super interesting. (laughs) A lot of fun, trust me. Yeah, they come from the Fiji Fijian Islands. All from yeah. all the islands around there, a lot of them get dist- uh, they're, they're species of concern now uh, because of uh, well, people have introduced uh, invasive species like rats and stuff eating the eggs. Uh, they've actually introduced green iguanas to the islands, so they're competing for territory now. And when you got an iguana that's seven feet compared to two feet, the seven foot usually wins in most fights. So yeah, of course. So that's usually the that's the main problem right now. So they're endangered over there, but yeah. they won't send them out to, they won't send them out to be bred anywhere else, right? So okay, I, do you know anything about the laws surrounding them because they're they're illegal in the U- United States, right? That's correct. Yeah, they're and, appendix one, CITES appendix one. So they won't bring them into the states. Why I don't know, and uh, I don't have an official answer for that. But everything I've read is because they're CITES Appendix 1, they won't bring them in. That's all it is. That's all I've heard. Um, but in Canada, most of them come through Europe. The pe- people in Europe have phenomenal collections of iguanas, and uh, most of them come from there. Interesting. So I, I read a book called um, Lost Worlds or something. And it talked about like all the smuggling and 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 that kind of stuff um, yeah. uh, of the Fiji iguana and how sort of apparently the San Diego Zoo is also and I don't want to like I'm not calling anybody out here I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but like it, apparently the San Diego Zoo was br- breeding them really well for a while and then was getting too many of them or it, it's been a while I can't I can't remember the exact details but they were getting they were so successful. And they couldn't keep all of them on the exhibit, so they just started selling them to the hobbyists, like under the table. And so they kind of started getting spread in the, in the United States. So they're actually apparently there, just very 
quietly. Nope. Yeah, nobody nobody knows or nobody I, talks about it. As far as I know, I haven't heard of anybody in the States with them. But yeah. I could like it's just like any other animal, like you could potentially have it and they just don't talk about it, right? They just like, don't talk about it, yeah. But uh yeah, the San Diego Zoo definitely has them. Uh the Toronto Zoo just started uh has has them right now and they just got a new clutch of eggs this year. So oh, yeah. They just hashed out a first clutch, so that's very cool. Yeah. Are, is there any possibility, and I don't know if this is even if this even makes sense, is there any possibility of like Every everybody like the Toronto Zoo trading bloodlines with you and with other breeders and other hobbyists to kind of keep everything going stronger. Mm -hmm. Is that not something? Not likely, unless you have a CASA license. You, yeah. Zoos can't officially trade with hobbyists. So and CASA is only given to zoos. So that's not uh, that's not really a likely. That's not very likely to happen. Right. And once you have a CASA license, you have to declare what you have. So most yeah. hobbyists don't want to declare what they have. So, yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, and I guess if if they were able to bring in the initial breeding group, they can probably bring in fresh blood from some yeah. else. Like the zoos can actively trade within between each other. So yeah. Toronto could trade with San Diego without any issue. Right. That that makes so. sense. Yeah. Well, okay. So we 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 jumped right to breeding right after die, but we didn't really discuss like care and 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 that kind of thing. So so tell me like how. Um, how hot are you keeping them? Did you keep a like a hot spot? Are you doing, yeah? How, how, what's the setup like? My rule for my rule for my iguanas, I keep them one nice big hot spot. You, uh, usually has uh, uh, like five or six branches just in that area that they can choose whichever one they want to lay on, and different thicknesses of branches. I've seen my iguanas lay on like little twigs compared to like full tree trunks that are all available in that one area. And then the rest of the tank is just a random assortment of branches at different sizes and thicknesses. And that's usually what they want. They they need places coverage. So if I don't have enough foliage in one area, they'll go behind the tree trunk on the other side. So when I walk in, they're, they shift their body and hide a little bit more. So That makes sense. That, are they like mostly arboreal, like always at always yeah. the top of the tank? Yeah. I've uh, I've very rarely seen my male iguana come down to the bottom of the tank. My female comes down to lay eggs, obviously, yeah. but majority of the time they stay to the top. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any idea on how um, how good of swimmers they are? Do they ever they use can, water? Or? I'm sure they can swim. I've never actually put my iguanas in water. They actually don't like me giving them water like that. Yeah. yeah, like I've tried spraying them with a spray bottle, and they try to attack me, attack the spray bottle. So I just okay. put them on my misking now, and they get it from that. So okay. they know where to get, they know where to get their water from. That makes um, sense. Yeah, I'm sure they're pretty good swimmers, like most lizards are. So I would, I'm not like if I, even if I had a big pool at the bottom, I wouldn't be too worried of them drowning or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. How, so, sorry, what, what did you say earlier? The the hot spot you keep it at. Uh, the hotspot I keep at a uh, at twenty eight degrees Celsius. Twenty eight, twenty eight degrees Celsius uh, at the hotspot. I I it ranges too because if you're closer to the lab, it'll get hotter, right? So yeah. uh, at their main basking area where I keep it, they they have the option of getting closer if they want or getting walking moving further away. Yeah, and and where do you find they're mostly hanging out? Do they are they do they uh, use it a lot? 
Yeah, at the twenty-eight degree mark, like it's yeah. it's kind of impressive that they know exactly where they are, where they want it. And yeah. usually, the male will lay there; the female will either try to push the male out, or uh, or the uh, she'll lay on top of the female sometimes. Okay. Sorry, the female will lay on top of the male. Yeah. Have you ever kept? I I think you maybe answered this about the dominance thing earlier, but have you ever kept um, like a trio in a tank, or do females not get along? I've kept trios in the tank. I've tried it in the beginning when I had them. And what I found is you get a dominant female that starts to starve out the submissive subdominant female. So I always found that I I always had one iguana that was always smaller and weaker and not getting enough food, even with the amount of space I gave them. So I always tend to separate them now and I always keep a pair. And and yeah, and you and you already said you you don't keep the pair together year round. No, no, I I rotate my females out with my man. Yeah, I'm 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 asking all these questions as if like mountain horn dragons are gonna be the exact same thing. But I'm that's exactly currently what I'm going through right now with the mountain horn dragons. Yeah. I just paired them for the first time, and I'm wondering if I should keep the male or the pair together all all year, or sort of rotate out the females. It, if you want different bloodlines, that's the main reason I, uh, I I rotate out the females. Yeah. So with between my two males, I rotate out the females to whoever's ready at the time. And then, yeah, like, sense. I do give my males a break. Like, uh, sometimes I give them three or four months off, and I don't breed them even if the females are laying eggs because the males get worn out too, and I don't want them to uh, become in, uh, like, I don't want them to get weaker for no reason. Right. That makes sense. Are so, are uh, do you do you roommate them? Um, do you like cool them at all at any point? No, I've never had to cool them, but there's a pretty big temperature gradient. My lowest temperature in the tank is twenty one, and the highest is like twenty eight and a little bit higher. So there's a huge temperature gradient depending on where you are in, in the tank. So that makes sense. And then like when 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 the female is about to lay her eggs. Are, do you have lay boxes or is it just kind of, I'm just going to search the whole tank until I find the eggs? That's yeah. literally female's choice. I've had lay boxes in tanks and they've literally laid beside the lay box. I've had them go in the lay box, dig out all the dirt and then go beside the lay box and I've had one female that lays only in the lay box. So it just literally just depends on that female. That's Usually what I find is if I put a branch or something or a piece of wood in the tank, they usually go under that piece of wood and lay under that. So I've been trying little experiments here and there, but it's in the end, I just have to see where they're digging. That's so. very funny. So when I was first, when I first started doing Cresties uh, a long time ago, my first year, 100% success of every single egg in the lay box. Year two, not a single egg <laughs> was laid in the lay box. And actually most of them I was finding like, under the lay box, like oh, really? they, they would dig them and, and lay them under the lay box, and then and and I also noticed the stick thing, um, but like more of like if if there was like a plant or like a tree kind of structure, they'd like dig to the roots and lay the eggs almost against the roots and then cover yeah, them so, back up. So it's there's some kind of protection for the eggs. So yeah, that's, so that must be what it is. I, I've, that, I've noticed that's what that I as assume well. It, that's what I assume it's gonna, uh, the reason why they do that because it's harder to move something that's already embedded in the ground. And yeah. most animals won't dig that deep. So if a predatory animal is digging down in the wild into the eggs, if they run into a tree stump, 
they're not usually going to dig in through a tree stump to get to the egg. So. They're just going to give up and, and yeah. move on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, that makes sense. Okay, so how, how I, I th- yeah yeah how long does um how long do the eggs take to hatch? So that's the really annoying thing about them. They can range yeah. from 125 days to 200 days. So there's no set temperature. Usually, if you have a higher temperature, they incubate faster, they hatch faster. Mm-hmm. But most of mine take about closer to 200 days. So do you do you check the incubator every day or I check. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say I check them every day, but I'll be honest, I check them every two to three days. Okay. That and usually I usually I have multiple temperature sensors and humidity sensors in the incubator. So even with the thermostat running, I have I look at all the sensors to make sure they're all right. If I read that they're, see that they're all right and look at the eggs and there's no mold growth or over condensation in the, tank, in the container, then I, I don't really worry about it. Yeah. No, I think I think you'd probably go crazy if you were checking the eggs every day. Yeah, like <laughs> it's when you work with a lot of species, it's harder when you have six different incubators running at six different temperatures and trying to figure out why one's not working. So yeah, and I think after a while, you learn to sort of the more the more you mess with them, the you know the less success you're gonna get, and you kind of learn to leave to leave them to leave yeah. the eggs alone and not. Yeah, that's not the truth. Like when I first had them. I used to cattle the eggs and stuff. Now I look at the egg, I'm like, okay, that's fertile. I put yeah. it in the computer, I leave it alone. Yeah. I look at it through the door, and that's it. That's it. I don't even open. Try not to open it if I don't have to. That makes sense. And how do you set the eggs up? Is it um, are are you going straight into the substrate or um, like egg trays or yeah? How, what, um, what's your set? I've tried a lot of things, but the most success I've had is uh, vermiculite or perlite. I make a damp section at the bottom of a rubberware container or like a Tupperware container. And then I put about an inch of dry perlite or a vermiculite on top of it. And then I bury the egg in that dry perlite or vermiculite. Right now I'm using perlite. So uh, okay. it's, uh, that way the egg stays, gets the humidity it needs, but it still stays dry enough and no mold growth or anything growth happens with that. That's interesting. So the bottom is wet and then you put like a dry layer on top of it. Exactly. And technically, yeah. most of the time the water stays is heavier, so it stays down to the bottom of the container anyway right but still creates that humidity that it needs so. yeah interesting very very interesting okay so now they've hatched um are the babies tough do they eat right away or like within usually when they have, when i see them hatching i usually leave them in the incubator until i see them moving around on their own i don't try to pull them and put them in a separate tank or anything the incubator is warm enough and at the right temperature for them and usually what happens is when one hatches and it starts moving around, it triggers the others to hatch. So if uh, like one runs and steps on the egg of another, the other one gets excited and comes back, comes out the next day, or starts cutting out, cutting itself out of the egg. Yeah. So I usually leave them in the incubator until they're three out of four are usually out, or at least their heads are out, and then the two, the one or two that are most dominant that are active. I'll pull them first and then I'll let the other two come out on their own. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, okay, so are you raising them in groups or is each baby getting an individual tank? No, no, I raise them in groups. It's raise too them. much. Uh, I keep them, the babies are in a 181836 skyscraper and uh, they have the whole kind to climb around in. And I have, I think, two to three feeding bowls at different levels. 
for, to get them uh, started eating. But once you get them eating, I usually just come uh, get them, bring it down to one, and they all take turns going to it. And then you'll see the hierarchy happening almost immediately. Yeah. You'll see who's the dominance and who's not. Who's the dom- Yeah, who's the big boy? And yeah. and and uh, what are you putting in those feeding bowls? Is it like greens or worms? Uh, mostly or greens, either. Actually. Mostly greens. greens. Okay. Uh, yeah. Worms. I I don't do worms because they're they're not very active. Um, yeah. I want the iguanas to be active, so yeah. I usually put crickets in and make them chase it around the tank. That makes I sense. have uh, cork. I have cork on the walls and everything, so they can literally climb on the walls itself to get a cricket. Yeah. Um, most of the greens I use are like dandelion greens, collard greens, uh, bok choy. A lot, a lot of the Asian grocery stores that I go to have a nice variety of greens that I always pick something new, chop it up, and just give it to them. They usually don't say no. Yeah, that makes sense. And and um, are they fast growers? Like, how? What's the growth rate? Uh, is it? Uh, if are you they really slow? Vari- if you give them a variety of food and a good sort, uh, good. A good amount of calcium and vitamins they grow pretty quickly it's uh you can get them to a juvenile size within almost two a year and a half to two years roughly um i don't keep track of the exact rate of growth because i'm not that concerned like once i decide to keep an animal i'll let it grow at the rate it needs to grow at so i'll feed it as i'll feed it as i do all my animals and if it decides to eat that day more or less i feed it so yeah how you said you said juvenile in a year and a half ish. Yeah. So how long before you'd consider it like a sexually mature adult? Uh once I see the juvenile male flaring up at the adult male, then I know he's get he's almost there. But once like by just comparing the sizes of my adult male and my juvenile male, or now my sub adult male, he they're they're almost like the sub adult male's literally there. It's just that my adult male is more dominant. That's all it is. So maybe let's jump. Let's jump to some of the other other cool species you're keeping. One of the ones that fascinates me the most um, are the indigos. You already know this. Um, so I have been to Alex's house and I've seen his collection. I've seen all the awesome animals. Uh, but it was something about the indigo snake that's visually. I don't know. It's they're they're fascinating. The scales almost look like armor. Like they look like something out of like a horror movie, but in the coolest way. When did you start keeping them, and um, and what's your opinion on? <laughs> <laughs> I got into indigos actually a little bit after I just got the PGs. Okay, cool. Um, it was something that I again I never thought of keeping a colubrid. I I was always into pythons and boas, never into colubrids, never into anything like that. And then the opportunity came up for an indigo. So I just took my chance and took a shot at it. And I bought a, I got a pair. And I had a pair of Dramashan and Kuparai, the the Eastern Indigos. Awesome. With them, they're probably the scariest and the most fun snakes you can have. Because their f- food drive is amazing. Like They're ready to go all the time. My yeah. male is in full shed. He's fully blue. He'll eat a two medium rats in one shot if I give it to him, like without trying. He'll sniff yeah. it out without, like I can leave it in the tank and walk away, and he'll eat it then by like within ten minutes it's gone. That's yeah. It's always nice to see a snake with a good food drive. Yeah. So, what what was it? Are they one of the species that was like almost knocking on the glass when we were there? 
That's the exact one. Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, the male was literally tapping at the glass trying to get out. Is that so? Are they? Yeah, is that what they're doing? Are they trying to get out, or is there, it like it, a it movement? So it thought it was getting fed. So yeah. okay. So I try to keep my animals as naturally wild as possible. I I do handle them because I let my five year old son play with these, like hold the indigos and stuff. So I need to make sure they're safe for him. But uh, what's it called? I try to keep my animals as uh, active and as as wild as possible, essentially. Yeah. So right now I'm building them a big tank individually. So uh, a six by two by three. Two. Uh, I'm building two of those right now for each of the two adults I have. So that's awesome. Okay. So how how big is an how big do they get? My adult male is almost six feet right now, just shy of six feet. Uh, in this species, actually, it's weird, but males actually are bigger than females. And uh, they have... Most people try to have a bread-shaped body. I try to keep my indigos with a triangular-shaped body. When indigos first came, uh, like when the people were originally working with them, what I learned from the people I talked to was that people fed them so much food. And because they would eat, they kept feeding them. So you got indigos that were round. And they wouldn't produce babies. They wouldn't they wouldn't do anything. They would just be obese. Yeah. So when one of the people I was working with, he taught, he taught, he he was one of the first people to breed the indigos in Canada, and he taught me that you don't feed or you don't overfeed them. You keep them in a triangular shaped body so they're always responsive and looking for food, but you don't overfeed them. That's the main thing. That's that's super interesting. Do we know why their scales are so much different than other snakes and why they look so cool? Uh, honestly, I couldn't tell you why their scales look so different, but I've seen that it's very. Uh, it look. It feels like armor in your hand. It does. It feels like it feels like armor, and it almost feels like. I I don't know if I I don't know if this makes sense, but you know when you see armor and like they they close their hands and almost like sheaths or, or like closes on top of each other. Exactly. Yeah. It almost looks like it closes up on each other. So like it must be some defense mechanism. It definitely helps with. I'm sure it helps with uh, because they're also snake eaters. They have to protect themselves against other snake bites and stuff. So that kind of scale, scale scaling would protect them against that. Whereas a ball python, if a because their scales are so small and soft, the uh, if a snake bit it, it would penetrate the scales more more than likely because there's so much so many smaller uh, scales for the teeth to penetrate. Okay, so there's so much to unpack there. Okay. So, so first, so first of all, no, no, that's good, that's good. So first of all, that that must be what it is, right? It's that their scales are so much bigger than other, and thicker, like they're... each and, and thicker, but each individual scale is so much bigger and thicker than. So that must be what gives it the visual difference, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, interesting. Okay, and then the other thing, the other big thing here that I had no idea, they're snake eaters. Yeah. So what what where where do they come from, like naturally, and what snakes are they eating in the wild? So they, uh, dry marshans are from southern United States, Central America, and South America. Oh, there okay. is five recognized species and and about three or four subspecies, depending on locality. Okay. So the uh, eastern indigo, the cuprai, dry marshan cuprai, uh, the yellow, uh, dry marshan coreas. 
the yellowtail and uh, yellowtail caribou and are the two most common ones. The blacktail is a smaller species of those. And the Mexican red tail is also a really nice one, top body black, the belly is red. Um, and uh, there's also on the eastern part of Mexico, there, uh, or sorry, Central America, there is the unicolors. So there's, it's a basically a tan indigo snake. And uh, the Texas indigos are more black with white pat white patching, and, and they're from Texas, obviously. So, yeah, um, that's so. Those are the one. And there's uh, there's also a white tail indigo that's uh, in, from Central America. So. White tail or yellow tail? White tail. White tail. So there's a yellow tail and there's white tail. White, yellow tail, black tail, and white tail. The white tail isn't as common, that's for sure. I have not seen it in the pet trade actually. The white tail. The white tail, yeah. But my the yellow tail by far is one of the biggest species, probably one of my favorites, uh, other than the uh, eastern. Because if you look at my Instagram, I posted a picture of one of my yellow tails, and it is stunning. The size it's not even a full size adult yet, and it's a male, and it's already like it over it dwarfs a lot of my other snakes. Yeah, those are the ones you were just showing me before we started, right? Yeah, those, those are the ones I showed you before, the blacktails. Those actually stay smaller than most of the other species. The ones you showed me were the blacktails? Were the blacktails, yeah. Okay. The yellowtails are like double the size of that. That's very interesting. So I had no idea that the yellowtails and the indigo and the blacktails were all the same. They're all the same family, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's super interesting. Okay, so so they're from there's they're from you said um, Central South America, um, yeah. Southern, Southern United America. States. Yeah. So what species of snakes are there? Is it is it, are they strictly snake eaters? Or... No, they're they will eat literally everything. I feed okay. my chicks. I feed them frog legs. I feed them fish. I feed them rats. They literally will eat anything you put in front of them. So they that's why they're one of probably one of the most successful species. Because they can, they're not limited to what you what's around. They can literally eat anything around them. Do any of the do any of the species cross over anywhere? Uh yeah, actually, a lot of them do. Yeah, the yellowtails, the uh, unicolors, the blacktails. The blacktails are mainly from Central America. They mainly they cross over into a lot of the territories, but they're also a smaller species. The uh, Mexican red tail indigos, they're, they're, they go into Central America and into the States, uh, where the Texas indigos are. And, uh, the cupra usually are Eastern, so Atlanta and, uh, uh, Georgia area. Is there any signs of them like, um, interbreeding? I, I'm, I, I haven't seen, I haven't done enough research to see. If they'll crossbreed, but I don't see why they wouldn't or why they couldn't, um, except for the fact that they will try to eat each other sometimes. So yeah, yeah, I guess especially if there's size differences too. Exactly, like mm -hmm. if I put a yellowtail with a, one of my indigos, I could see my indigo, one of my indigos getting eaten from yeah. an adult male yellowtail. So yeah, well, your your indigo was the first one I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of pictures of them because I think they're a fascinating snake. Yeah. But seeing yours in person and actually holding it, I was surprised at the size and the weight and the strength of them as well. I was not expecting them to be that big. Yeah, it's like a 
supersized corn snake that has like a thousand times more strength. Yeah, and, and and like a like like we were saying, like an armor plated corn snake. Yeah, exactly. It's a phenomenal animal to work with. Like, if I, I've only been successful breeding them once, and if I and I try to breed them every year, mine are, are an original captive bred pair. Uh, but sorry, sorry, what was that? Mine are an original captive bred pair from, captive the, bred. from the person I got it from, but he was working with them for years before me. So, uh, so I've only been successful breeding once, but I'm in no rush to breed them. If they don't take one year or two years, I'm not that concerned. I'm not pushing their bodies to the limit to try to pump out as many babies as I can. I'd rather have them be healthy and live a long life. And if they produce babies for me, amazing. If they don't, I still have such an amazing creature that it's still awesome to have. Yeah, you you said captive bred. So are are usually most of the ones in the hobby, or most of the ones we're seeing, are they usually wild caught? No, you can't actually bring uh, the cooper really the eastern indigos. You can't actually bring them out of the states anymore. Uh, they're federally protected. You can't wow. bring them into the states either. So whatever bloodlines you have of the cooper right now is what you have in Canada. Okay. That makes sense. The other ones, uh, Mexican red tails, uh, Texas indigos, all uh, all those are more common. The yellow tails come in regularly. The black tails are not as common, but they're really nice. Uh, the unicolors are have been in here. Uh, I've seen a few shipments of those come in. So, why do you think? Um... Why do you think we don't see them more often in the hobby? Is it because they're just not easy to breed? Or is it, do you think there's just not enough interest in them? Uh, it's, it's both, actually. It's it's also a big snake. People are people are yeah. afraid of big snakes for the most part. And people don't think of, when they think of a big snake, they think retic or uh, Burmese or uh, Anaconda. They don't think of a uh, giant colubrid. So it's not something that most people know about. That's actually, I think, what it is. And the people who know about them understand them and they're like mesmerized by them like I am. But the people who don't just don't. That's all I think it is. So it's right. just not not enough knowledge about them. Right. So you were successful breeding them once? I was. Were but you I only got able... one egg to hatch. You only got so, one egg to hatch. Yeah. And that was my one male baby. And he's growing phenomenally. He is. For the first year, he wouldn't eat. Like, uh, for the first year, he wouldn't eat for me, so I had to force feed him. So I got really good at force feeding angry snakes. Uh, but uh, after that, like, once he started eating on his own, it was perfect. Like, he eats uh, almost an adult mouse now. Like, just a, a, a size down from an adult mouse uh, every week at this point. Sorry, they have much crazy. higher metabolism, so they burn through mice and rats really quickly. Yeah. I like I already mentioned this to you, but I need to introduce you to Jan from Monarch Reptiles. I think you yeah. guys would have a lot to talk about. Um, he's <laughs> doing some some awesome stuff with with Glubrids as well. Uh, um, super fast metabolism. So, what temperature? I like or like what temperature ranges are you keeping them at? How hot do they need to be? Uh, my indigos are at about eighty five to ninety degrees. Uh, I they are in a six foot long tank, so they have the option to adjust their own temperature. I have them on a radiant heat panel. So I keep the heat panel at 87 degrees. And I have a piece of slate underneath the tank, uh, under the heat panel. So that heats up if they want to bask on a rock. 
they'll go on top of that. And I have uh, basically trap boxes for them to hide in, which is easier for me to make. So That's interesting. So, okay, so I know you said you're kind of giving them space and you're not really pairing them, you're not doing yeah. all that. But like, uh, well, first of all, do you cool them every year? Even when yeah. you're not trying to breed them, you are cooling them. Yeah, I have to cool them for, I, I try to cool my males for about, a month and a half, and even in, even in during cooling, he's still eating. He's still eating quite a bit of food, more than I expect him to. And I tend to I try lowering the temperature every year, but he's still just as responsive so when I'm cooling him. Yeah. So like their drive doesn't change if it's uh, cooler temperatures or warmer temperatures, for, as far as I've seen. So how how do you go about cooling? Do you take him out of the tank and put him in a different tank, or no? I I just reduce the temperature that the heat panel puts out. I drop it down to uh, during the day the temperature drops from eighty seven to eighty, and then at night it drops to seventy four, seventy between seventy four and seventy six. Right. So uh, and the females I cool at the same temperature, but they're still just as responsive. So. I'm not. Uh, I, I, I either I'm not doing it correctly still, or they're just as uh, driven. So that's very interesting. And okay, so here's here's a uh, here's interesting. Do you feed your colubrids anything different than what you're feeding um, your pythons or your other snakes? I guess you're not really keeping many pythons anymore, yeah. Uh, I I have the one ball python for my son. Yeah. Uh, he eats rats. Or sorry, she eats rats. Uh, my boas, I feed them chicks and quails. Um, I feed the indigos fish. I've tried boas with fish. So they're sometimes responsive to it, sometimes not. I usually have to have them live, and I don't like putting a live fish in the, in the tanks because it makes a huge mess with them. So, yeah. so what what kind of fish do you feed? Uh, do you feed them? Oh, uh, just like mackerel and stuff, right out of the grocery store. I thawed out and so frozen thawed as well. Yeah. Okay. Super interesting. Super interesting. Yeah, but they when they de because indigos defecate a lot. Like every almost immediately after a meal, they'll start defecating across the tank. Okay. If you feed the fish, you'll you'll know that they've gone to the bathroom. For sure. Yeah, you you can smell. Yeah, I I've I've smelled the smell difference of depending on what you fed the animal. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Um, okay, so so you do you do you said you do cool them, and then so what's the process for them? Is it um you pair them? Yeah, a couple so of weeks keep, and then you separate the mail or so I keep them paired from so I cool them till about December 15th and then from December 15th to February March I try to keep them together I separate them if I'm feeding them so I'll separate the mail and put it back in this tank if I'm feeding them but that's the only time I separate them once they're separated I feed them let them digest for a day or two and then I put them back together they lock up about three to four times in that time period and usually the male does a mating dance, which I've caught on video a few times, actually. The moment I put them in, he usually locks up with her. What, what's what's the mating dance? What, well, like, he, he literally goes on top of her, tries to, uh, uh, like, tries to make her responsive. So usually the uh, male goes on top of her, runs his body over top of her on either side, and tries to direct her where he wants her to go. And the female usually, if she's responsive, will submit to that. And go ahead with that but uh if she's not like i've never seen her not be responsive because usually when i put them together they lock up within the first hour 
So but, that's super yeah. interesting. I'll send you a video of it if you want. Please do, please do. Yeah, I, I would love to see that. Yeah. Uh, um, are, are they are they rear fang venomous? No, but they have really big teeth. They have really the nasty bite. Teeth. Like their bites. I've I've actually not been bit by an animal, thankfully. I've okay. tried not to be. Uh, but they're like I've heard their teeth are like a chainsaw. It bites and tears. So it'll be a pain, it'll be a painful bite. I like I have no issue getting bit by a snake. It's I get it. I get bit by green tree pythons all the time. So it's it's a painful bite. I get it. But yeah. this uh, this one like just the presence they give you when they come at you is just like stay out of my way. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean everything everything about the snake screams stay out of my way. Yeah. Um. Like I don't. Yeah. There's not many snake species that I like i keep saying i really want but that is definitely one of them i just don't don't want to set up this i, I don't want to dedicate the space to it yeah <laughs> but yeah. they they look like they're an incredible looking species um yeah i don't know i just i just love them so much um but yeah and you, and you have so many you have so many awesome like rare species to talk about too that we, we're definitely gonna have to do this again and and maybe hit like a different two species next time because for sure anytime yeah yeah it's awesome okay so let's let's wrap it up let's wrap it up on this question Okay. what's the what's the next what's the next future dream project that you're working on or like, uh, or planning to work on or um what's what's in the books so hopefully it's uh the philippine sail pen dragons i have a male right now hopefully it's uh i can get a hold of a female Awesome. And that would be one of my dream projects. I already work with the Abidenses at the store. I have a breeding pair at the store, so I've been breeding them for 10 years. So right. if I can get a pair of the Philippine Silphan Dragons, that would be phenomenal. Otherwise, for snake species, I don't know. It's just like any species that I've worked with, it hasn't been something I've ever been interested in. If the opportunities come up and I've taken a chance on it, them, and yeah. I've fallen in love with it. So... It's, I, I haven't decided yet. Maybe a carpet python. Maybe anacondas because I love anacondas apparently. I, yeah. took few, I took care of a few in the store. And the way they eat underwater is phenomenal. They were they were amazing. Like, I've never were seen they them. like full-grown anacondas? Yeah. No, no. The, sorry. The three, I got it in as a boarding for someone. So at my store, we do boarding. And we do, like... They brought me three baby anacondas, so I put them in a paludarium. And I they weren't eating for him, but the moment I put them in the paludarium, uh, they ate for me within like a couple of days of being in there. And they were, I could feed all three of them in one tank. They would literally drop down into the water, strangle it, and eat the food. It was amazing. What were you feeding them? Uh, rats, frozen rats. But uh, yeah, but since I saw that, I've just been like, I got to get something like that in my house now. But how how would you fit something that big? And that's the problem. That's the big problem. That's, that's why yeah. I don't. That's why I don't have one yet. Yeah, yeah. You've been you need to, my to house. dedicate like a room for something like that big. I, I would. I'd have to build like. Actually, my friend just gave me a five hundred gallon pond. Well, there you go. There <laughs> yeah, you go. So I got to build step. the top part for it now. Exactly. The yeah. first step is there. Okay. So okay. So five hundred five hundred gallon pond. That's a that's another. That's another that's project in the a works. Future project, future something project, that, 
something that if I have space for, I will put out and build something outside. Okay, awesome. Alex, thank you very much. That was all very, very, very interesting information on two species that I think for myself and I'm sure for many, many other people are bucket list species like they're like dream species for everyone. Um, So thank you very much for all that um, awesome information and for giving us all your secrets. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, so can you can you please let everyone know where they can find you? Um, so I have my Instagram. I work, I work at Big Al, so you can visit me at the store in Scarborough. Uh, but you can also see me, uh, check me out on Instagram at Alex underscore Reptile World or Alex underscore C. Uh, I think that's the one, sorry. They'll be it, in the description. Find exactly. it in the description. It'll be in yes. the description. But yeah. Alex underscore Reptile World is the one that's going to have the most animal posts and the newest animal posts. Awesome. So. Yeah. And then usually as well, you can find them at the Reptile Expos in yes. Toronto. Um, yeah, so, I'm usually renting at one of the at the expos there under yes. DNA Reptiles. Yeah, so if you see him at one of the shows, go say what's up. Tell him you love this episode. Tell him you love the species we talked about. <laughs> um, but most importantly, give him a follow. And yeah, once again, Alex, thank you very much for, for, for coming on and doing this. Oh, we, oh right so on right on time, the lights just turned <laughs> <There you> off. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll we'll have to do we'll have to pick another two of the species you're working with and, and for sure, again. maybe the maybe the, the star tortoises or, yeah, or whatever they're cool. called. Just got next, so hopefully. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Awesome. That yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. And for everyone else, I am Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms, Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast. Thank you all for listening and we will see you on the next one.